coming to you loud and clear from our safe and germ-free homes and on Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Zorba Pastor on your health. I'm Carl Christensen, filling in again for Tom Clark. And as always, we're here to talk with you about what's new in healthy living, share some down-to-earth advice and great lifestyle tips to help you get the most out of life. And as usual, Zorba, we have a few topics to talk about today. Yes, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease, biomarkers, are they accurate, how they help us with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, what does it mean for you, what does it mean for your relatives or your loved ones. And then we're also going to talk about sleep. How vital is it? Well, we know it's important, we know it's vital, but how important is it for the way you live your life? We think about going out and exercising, we think about diet, but how many of us think about sleep as a crucial, crucial thing. And what is the special recipe today? Honey, garlic, salmon. I Ooh. love honey. I love garlic. I love salmon. So I love honey, garlic, salmon. It's a really good recipe. Easy recipe, something anyone can take up. And frankly, salmon is really the best fish. It's filled with omega-3 fatty acids. It's, it's something we should eat more and more of. I mean, really, folks, less brats, more salmon. Less brats, <laughs> more salmon. 800-462-7413 is the number to call, where anytime you can leave a voicemail with your question for Dr. Zorba. And then stay tuned. You just might hear yourself on the show. That's 800-462-7413. I'm also happy to announce later in the show, we'll hear from Tom Clark in his shiny high-tech kitchen, also known as the Microwave Museum, (laughs) for today's recipe. (laughs) That's a new term for that, actually. We just just came up with that. Our research department just came up with that. The microwave music. You know, those researchers, (laughs) I'll tell you, you know, Comedy Central has nothing on Wisconsin Public Radio. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've been combing through the many voicemails listeners have left us. So let's kick things off with the caller who lives in the second most famous Lodi in the country which also happens to be the hometown of Dukes of Hazard star Tom Wopat. Let's hear from Lodi, Wisconsin. I have a question regarding COVID-19 and people who are reporting having um, symptoms of COVID after their second vaccine, and it seems to be people who are younger, so less than 6, 70 years old. So I'm wondering if people who are older who do not have any symptoms are actually producing a level of antibodies that is protective for them. Thank you. Bye. Such a good question and something that comes up all the time. First of all, I want to talk about, she has a great definition for younger. People are younger, and she said younger than 65. So (laughs) she talks about young people being younger (laughs) than 65. I got to tell you something. I was brought up during the war in Vietnam. I remember the phrase, never trust anyone over 30. What a great <laughs> phrase, I thought. I never trust anybody over 30. I mean, That's now right. I, I, I don't trust people under the age of 65. They don't really know what they're talking about. It's such a funny phrase. So younger people are generally having uh, a more robust response in terms of side effects. In other words, they're more likely to have fever, chills, be in bed for a day or two. Uh, but, but from a point of view of protection, I don't think there's any evidence that there really is a difference. Now, older people often do not have the same robust antibody response, no matter what, to what their disease is, which is why the older you get, the more likely you are to die of an infectious disease. But from a point of view of the efficacy of all of the vaccines, they appear to be just as effective in preventing COVID in somebody 65, 75, and 85, as they are in somebody 35, 45, and 55. So the response doesn't correlate with essentially the effectiveness of the vaccine. It's just sort of a response thing. So good question. The answer is you get your shots, you're covered. 800-462-7413. That's one 800 462 7413. Let's keep those voicemails rolling in, Zorba. Here's a caller in Brooklyn, New York. My question has to do, it's, a, it's kind of a specific question and a general question. The general question is, what do you do when two of your doctors disagree about a course of action, to, uh, specifically about whether to take a statin? What do you think? Okay, thanks. 
Well, this is a hard question to answer. And unfortunately, because it's a recorded call, we can't ask him the other information that's really important. Uh, so there are kind of our general rules of when to take a statin. If, if the risk that you're going to uh, have a heart attack or a stroke over the next 10 years is greater than 7.5%, the idea is to take a statin. But what if you've got a family history? What does that mean? That doesn't figure into these formulas. What if uh, you're somebody who really exercises all the time? That doesn't really fit into the formula either. So that's where clinical judgment on statin use comes. Then there's a reticence. Why should I have to take this drug every day? Is it really going to make a difference? And so you have people sitting on both sides, especially if you're on the fence yourself. So this is not easy. So the first thing I recommend is you've got to arm yourself with information. I mean, you have to then become an expert on what you're going to do, and you've got to read good information about that. And that means going to good sources, Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, reading about statins uh, and looking up stuff and getting an idea yourself. And then the other question is, who do you get for for another opinion? You've got two opinions. One person says, yes, you ought to take it. One person says, no, I don't think you really ought to take it. And sometimes, believe it or not, getting a third opinion from somebody who is a preventive cardiologist. There are preventive cardiologists who do nothing but look at prevention, medications you should took. That's what I would recommend. And there probably is one in your area. If not, yes, your doctor say, look, I want to get to a preventive cardiologist and get a third opinion. And often you will connect with that. There are some very good um, articles in something called Up to Date. Unfortunately, Up to Date itself is something that you can't get unless you pay for it. It's very expensive. It's like four or five hundred dollars a year. But one of your two doctors may have access to Up to Date. And if they do, what I would recommend is another way to educate yourself is say, look, would you please print out everything on Up to Date for me? Let me read it. And then read the information in up-to-date because up-to-date is updated within the last year. It gives you good information and helps you make your decision. This is a common question that has a unique answer for everyone. Now, Zorba, I've always wondered this, you know, you being a doctor, I'm sure you've had patients that have come in and said, hey, I had a different doctor to give me this opinion. I'm coming to you to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that as a doctor? How do when you clearly you disagree with the other doctor? How do you how do you communicate that to the patient? I'm always curious how that goes. But, well, what do you mean? I guess from my perspective mm -hmm. here, I'll just give you a little background. Both my parents were teachers okay. growing up. So if I ever had any issue with a teacher at school, I would come home and I'd say so and so, you know, my teacher said this and it was I didn't even, you know, she said I did this and I didn't even do that or whatever and I always found it was really hard to get sympathy from my parents who are both <laughs> teachers uh -huh. because, sure. because sure. they know how hard it is to be a teacher. That's so, right. But I just wonder if that somehow relates a little bit to being a doctor when, you know, it's not an easy job, obviously, uh -huh. and you have sympathy for the other doctor who may be not giving the best advice according to your opinion. How do you deal with that with a patient? Well, the first thing I tell people is educate yourself about your problem. How do you do that? Go to good sources, Mayo Clinic, university websites, and so on. And you can always ask your doctor for an output of up to date. Up to date is a great medical resource that lists the pros and cons of things. Uh, hard to get uh, without your doctor because it's like $500 a year and that's, they, they, they pay for it often through their group. So up to date gives you really good information. That's it. Then if you're still unsure and you're looking, you've got to decide between one doctor or another, believe it or not, a third doctor may do the trick. So in the case of a statin, I would recommend going to a preventive cardiologist whose job is to look at all the data, not just plugging you into a formula, but looking at the formula and then putting clinical judgment into practice. So preventive cardiology may be the key to a situation like this. 800-462-7413 is the number to call anytime to leave a message with a question for Dr. Zorba to answer. And we'll get back to those calls in just a bit. But first, Zorba, there have been two recent breakthroughs in the potential detection of Alzheimer's and one of them as Peter Gabriel might say, could be in your eyes. Right, in your eyes. That is, that is a funny thing. Sorry. So first of all, uh, 
uh, when, when a doctor looks in the back of your eyes, these are neurons that are part of your brain. The retina is part of your brain. It's an extension, really, of your brain. And so when you look in the back of the eye and look at the retina, you're often looking at the brain. And if the brain swells, one of the things I was taught, I was brought up before we had CAT scans, MRI scans, we had only clinical judgment. And clinical judgment was we had to find out if the brain was swollen with people. And we would look in the back of the eye and we would look at something called the optic cut. And the optic cup is around the macula, which is the part of the eye which you actually are reading with, where you do the fine work. And if the optic cup was blurry, it meant the brain was swollen. In other words, we could tell that by looking at the eye. The eye is, you know, is transparent, so you can see neurons. Every other place in your body is obscured by skin. Or if you're going inside the body, obviously you're looking at the GI, uh, at the GI gut. It's not obscured. But anyway, the brain is really an extension of the eye. So it's sort of amazing. So this is the idea that if we look into the eye, we may be able to see differences that are predictive of Alzheimer's disease because we're looking at the nerves of the eye. And that's one study that is ongoing because we don't really have a good way of looking at Alzheimer's, predicting Alzheimer's, and dealing with Alzheimer's. By the way, in the eye, you can also tell that people have cholesterol buildup. That's a very common thing. You see it, you actually see cholesterol deposits in the eye, and you know if they're in the eye, they're in the brain. And the other issue is a blood test to detect Alzheimer's. Now, it's really not the way it is. There's sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity of a test is, hey, does it pick it up? You know, what's the chances you're going to pick it up? Specificity is, hey, if it picked it up, is it actually uh, the disease or is it not the disease? And a lot of tests have, are very specific and a lot of tests are not. So example, if you have an abnormal pap smear, it is sensitive in picking up uh, whether or not you have cervical cancer, but it's not very specific. So the next test is you go and do a biopsy to see whether or not the cells really show cancer. Same for mammograms. They've got a sensitivity, a whole bunch of things. The test that they're looking at for Alzheimer's disease, the blood test, is not very specific and is not very sensitive, but it is a step forward. It's looking for APOEA4, which is actually something we know is associated with Alzheimer's. But once again, it's not very predictive. But I think on the horizon, we're trying to find a way to predict early onset Alzheimer's because that may help us decide what we can do to prevent the progression of Alzheimer's. And these two forthcoming ideas, looking in the back of the eye for something and the blood test, are really a minor step forward. They're a good step forward, but they're minor. And frankly, we're not there yet. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413 is the number to call with your question. Back to those voicemails now. Let's hear from a caller in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Hi, I just heard the discussion about adolescent suicide and exercise. And I was wondering, is it the exercise or is it the fact that maybe they're on a team and have an interaction with other kids that might be the thing that would affect a de decrease in depression rather than just exercise by itself. In other words, the interaction rather than the you know, activity. Thanks. Bye. Perfect. There are, I think there are three things going on here. Very important things. First of all, I think exercise does play a role. I don't know about you, but if I've had a long day in the office, I mean, you know, a day where things are just, you know, just difficult. And if I go home and I take a jog, you know, it clears my mind. Why does it definitely. clear my mind? Does that yep. happen to you? You go Absolutely. outside and you jog? Yeah, it definitely helps. It clears your mind. You come yep. home, reality is the same when you come home. It doesn't actually solve anything. But I don't know. What do you, how do you feel, Carl? Don't you feel like better, able to tackle the problems? Yeah. It's like a mini reset button. That's it. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Always going back to that, to that reset. I think you're right. It is a mini reset, but then you've got the camaraderie of being on a team. That's a biggie. I mean, sure. in the time of COVID, we miss interaction. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but uh, meeting in zoom is not the same as going down to the office and meeting with five people, having some coffee, you know, talking about things before the meeting. Remember, yep. aren't you? And you're smiling right now. It's like, you remember, you sit down, hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? I'm worried like, that I'm not going to know how to talk to people anymore once things return to uh, 
whatever normal is. <laughs> I, I, I think I, th- I think if you're worried about that, you got to go outside and jog right now to clear your mind. <laughs> you have to do. Okay, fair uh, enough. But the third issue here may be self-selection, that kids who actually join a team may be less likely to commit suicide. In other words, so there's a self-selection bias here. Not everyone joins a team, not everybody does things on a team. So that may be part of it also. Uh, but be that as it may, I don't think you should sit back and say, hey, it's self-selection, so we're not going to encourage kids to be on teams. I think team sports are awesome. There are lots of research that show the team sports really help because of the camaraderie, the exercise, and of course, let's not forget the winning. That's 1-800-462-7413. But before we take a break, Zorba, let's check in again with your favorite know-it-alls, the Grammar Police. And actually, Zorba, today's infraction will be handed out courtesy of the Pronunciation Police. You love them too, right? I love them. Love okay. them. Love them. Yep. Love them. And it comes from a listener, Jim, in Spokane Valley, Washington. Jim writes, Hey, Dr. Z, being a science teacher since the earth was cooling, I'm quite... It's <laughs> <laughs> a good opener. <laughs> I'm quite irritated when people misuse the word genera to describe one type of thing, be it a music category, a movie category, or singular grouping of animals like Homo sapiens when they should, in fact, be using the word genus to describe said categories of things. Can you tell you know us what? a science teacher? You know what? Yeah, that's right. He is, <laughs> he is, he is a genius for saying genus. I think he's exactly right. right. We'll have to make sure There's more. Hang that. on. No, no, no. Wait, wait. There's the more. Part. No, there's more. Okay. There's more. Sorry. Uh, Jim goes on. I know I have too much time on my hands. And sidebar, that is a very important indicator of a grammar police or pronunciation police. They should all include that (laughs) sentence. I have too much time on my hands. (laughs) Jim says, I have too much time on my hands if a word's usage causes me angst. But could people at least be aware of word choice when they speak? Genera are fingers on the chalkboard to me. Just venting. Thank you. I love your show. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't use the word genera. I know that it's not really in my vocabulary. So I wonder where you heard that. There were other. Well, no, 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 no. I can't remember everything that happens. So obviously, <laughs> people have used genera in letters, or they've talked about genera with that, and obviously, it's like. Ah! <laughs> on the chalkboard, but Carol. Now, speaking of chalkboards, when you were a kid. Did they have chalkboards? Yeah, they had not converted fully yet to whiteboards. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I definitely uh-huh. grew up with chalkboards. Yeah. What color was the chalk? White. See, now in the Chicago Public Schools, <laughs> they had a step forward. The boards were green and the chalk was yellow. Oh. They thought that would be easier on the eyes. It wasn't a black board with white chalk. It was a green board with yellow chalk. And that's in see? Chicago. You'd think they wouldn't want Packer colors for their chalk. Oh, chalk. I never thought about that. <laughs> they were Packer colors. That's exactly it. That's why they probably got rid of them. Maybe, yeah. On, on, oh, my God, that never went into my eye. Packer colors. You know, you know, there was, you know something? The person who decided that was probably a Packers fan. Yeah, a little. Subversive. Through. And you know something? That is a subversive thing to try to get people to I like that. go. <laughs> Little subliminal conversion tactic for subliminal. Chicago. I mean, I mean, come on. We were anti-communist, but we were also anti-packer. Sorry. <laughs> Would you like to join the always growing grammar police? Post on our Facebook page, or you could send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org. We have many more of your calls to come, more of your emails as well. And, of course, we'll hear from celebrity chef Tom Clark during our special recipe segment. All that coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the public radio exchange.
Carl Christensen filling in for Tom Clark on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Now, there are plenty of reasons to listen to the show, and one of those reasons is to see what Chef Tom Clark is cooking up in his experimental test kitchen. So let's head over there right now where Zorba and Tom are busy putting together a tasty yet healthy recipe for honey garlic salmon. Right. Uh, Honey garlic salmon, Zorba put it together for us. That's it? I mean, no comment about the honey? Aren't you going to say, I love honey? Okay. Yeah, I like honey. No, 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 no. Like is never... How about garlic? Come on, Tom. Garlic is good. Yeah, garlic, garlic is, good. is good. So if you were to prefer garlic or honey, I mean, are you like a savory person for garlic or a sweet person for honey? What would you, what would you choose? What I like, Zorba, is honey, garlic, salmon. <laughs> salmon is the best fish. Salmon has omega-3 fatty acids. It's got exactly the right uh, type of fatty acids. We know people that eat fatty fish, especially fish twice a week, but especially fatty fish can make a real difference in terms of heart disease. So the more you can cook salmon, the better off it is. My wife, who knows everything, uh, says (laughs) wild, wild salmon is much better for you than the other. Well, that is, and that actually is a good, is a good argument. It definitely probably is better because of the muscle structure of the salmon that are actually trying to get, trying to get upstream. But I, but I think that, I think that farm raised salmon is a good alternative. It's cheaper. It's made salmon basically available to everyone around the country. Do you know what they feed the salmon when they're feeding them salmon in the farm raised areas? I don't have no idea. Fish. They're feeding them them fish. Salmon's favorite food is fish. That's exactly. exactly Unfortunately, Zorba, we're out of time for the recipe. Okay. Okay. All right. So start out with a third of a cup of honey. Third cup honey. A quarter cup of soy sauce. If you can get it, go to an Asian grocery store and get the light soy sauce. And light soy sauce tastes the same, but it has less salt in it. A quarter cup soy sauce. Two tablespoonfuls of lemon juice. Fresh is best, and if not frozen. Two big tea lemon juice. A teaspoon of red pepper flakes. A little tea, red pepper flakes, or... As we do, you can do a tablespoon. Exactly. And that's what I do in my house, too. I love, we love the heat. You love the heat. I love the heat. Um, Three tablespoonfuls of extra virgin olive oil. Three big tea extra virgin olive oil. Four six-ounce salmon fillets patted dry with a paper towel, preferably wild. Four six-ounce salmon fillets patted dry with a paper towel. Three cloves of minced garlic. Three cloves minced garlic. A lemon that you're going to slice into rounds because you're going to use it on top of things. A lemon sliced into rounds. One tablespoonful of chopped parsley. A big tea chopped parsley. And then some kosher salt and some pepper. Salt and pepper. Here's how we make it. In a medium bowl, whisk together the honey, soy sauce, lemon juice, and red pepper flakes. Make sure they're all mixed up. Then in a large skillet over medium heat, it's important, medium heat, heat up two tablespoonfuls of olive oil. And I would wait at least a minute. You want to make sure that the olive oil is hot, but it's not smoking. You can sort of get an idea for how that looks. Then add the salmon skin side up if you're using wild salmon. Uh, it's going to have a skin on it. Skin side up, season with salt and pepper. You know, before you put it in there, put it skin side up, cook the salmon until it's uh, deeply golden. Remember the S&P before you actually put it on, but that's about six minutes. Then flip it over and then add the remaining olive oil. So initially you put a little bit of that olive oil, tablespoonful of the olive oil, and then you put some all of the other olive oil on top of it because you really want it to get into the salmon. Then add garlic to the skillet the last minute for about a minute because you want the garlic to be fragrant but not burned. And then add the honey mixture and the sliced lemons and then cook until the sauce is reduced by about a third. Take the salmon out, baste the sauce on top of the salmon and put the sliced lemon on top of it and then sprinkle the garlic on the parsley rather on top of that then serve it bring it over to a table and if you have your covid vaccine and you are two weeks after your booster dose you might actually have someone else you know in the house to serve this to because this serves four people this really sounds good azorba you do a lot of cooking don't you 
I do. I do. I I love cooking. Well, Monica and I kind of divide up the meal chores, and here's the way it works. Okay. She does the grocery shopping. Okay. She does the cooking. I don't know how to cook. Okay. (laughs) So after after our meal, she takes the dishes off of the table, puts and puts (laughs) them in the uh, in the dishwasher. But after the meal, after the the dishwasher, I empty the dishwasher uh-huh. and put the silverware in the plates and stuff. And I almost always get them in the right place. <laughs> so that's our division of labor. That's your division of labor. You know, I kind of think that Monica is kind of getting the bad end of this deal. That after <laughs> how many how many years how many years have you guys been married? About you don't have to give an exact number. How many years? Oh, it's been a while. It's been a while. After all the years that you guys have been married, maybe it's time for her to renegotiate that agreement. I mean, you know, just to moving you know, right along. <laughs> I think we better go back to Carl. Carl, let's send it back to you right now. All right. Thanks, Tom. 800-462-7413 is the number to call anytime to leave a question for Dr. Zorba. And let's get back to those voicemails now. Here's a listener from the hometown of both Rick James and Terry Gross. This is a caller from Buffalo, New York. I'm 74 years old, and in the past, five, maybe six years, I've slowly developed this, uh, what I would call and what I've looked up as atopical dermatitis. At first, I thought it was something like psoriasis, but my primary physician says it wasn't, it isn't. All all he told me was go to a dermatologist, Uh, which uh, by the time I set up the appointment, the antifungal medicine that I was rubbing into the different spots on my body, my elbows and back of my knees started was disappearing. But now this past, since being in the house, this pandemic period, they've come back and they're very itchy and they form patches that look like to me psoriasis, but not raw and red like I've seen, but just bumpy, small patches. I've tried antifungal creams. They seem to kill it on the surface, but I believe it's internal somehow. Okay, thank you very much. We don't know the cause of psoriasis. We don't know what actually causes it. So when you say internal, undoubtedly it runs in families. And so there is an element of internalness to it. It's not a fungus. So when he's putting in the antifungal cream, what he's really doing is putting a cream into whatever the rash is. They may be psoriatic plaques that actually are there. And creams can be good. Creams without any medication can be can be good for it. Just plain old Vaseline cream can really help well with both eczema and psoriasis. And a tar-based cream, which is in a shampoo, if you get a tea tea-based shampoo, tar-based shampoo, that actually is also good for psoriasis and eczema too and putting that through. But he really needs to diagnose by a doctor. And if his doctor is not comfortable, says, I want you to go to a dermatologist, do that. We primary care doctors see psoriasis all the time, see eczema all the time. We have access to many of the same creams and lotions that are really the first step for psoriasis. So I'd call his doc back and say, hey, do you want to look at me again or do you want me to see a dermatologist? But if it comes back, you want to be seen because you want to put on the right thing. And you don't want to take an over-the-counter antifungal cream when you don't need the antifungal actually chemical on you and you're just using the cream formation. And something during this time of COVID often is you can do some telemedicine with your provider and they may be able to answer the question just by the location and what those individual individual rashes look like. That would be my recommendation. That's 1-800-462-7413. Let's go now to a caller in Iowa. My question is, I've lost about 30, 35 pounds in the last few months, and I just can't seem to gain weight. And I don't have an appetite for days sometimes, and I can't afford to be losing this much weight. I'm pushing 70. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. You know, uh, it's it's kind of a it's a good important statement and people say hey you lost weight it's really good you know how'd you do it and well the reality is if you lost weight and you didn't do anything to lose the weight it really isn't good it means something sure. something serious may be going on 
Anybody who's lost 30 pounds and hasn't been trying to lose 30 pounds, anybody who doesn't have an appetite, they say, I just don't know what's going on. They need to see their doctor. They don't do it on the phone. If you're, as long as you're immunized, go in and see them. If they're only doing telemedicine, do it that way, but that's very secondary. You need some blood tests to find out what's going on. Is this depression? Is this anxiety? Is it cancer? Is it heart disease? What's going on? You don't lose 30 pounds unless something is going on in your body. And so some people can often lose five or 10 pounds and they say, well, I'm just losing some weight, but 30 pounds, that can be a very serious thing. Get thee to a doctor. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413. And Zorba, we get so many calls from our fantastic listeners with so many great questions. And we also get calls from helpful listeners who just want to share a comment or perhaps a health tip. So we made some time for those listeners in a segment called Caller Comments, and it goes like this. This is a bunch of caller comments. Calling us with their health tips. Thanks. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We do appreciate it. We do. Yeah. First up, Zorba, let's hear from a caller who listens to the show from 4,000 miles away. Four th- where do you think that is? You want to guess? Where's 4,000 miles uh, away? Uh, <laughs> it could be any direction, right? Uh, yeah, it could be right. Antarctica. Gra- gra- no, yeah, no, it's not quite that far. Ecuador. Close. Not close, actually. But uh, <laughs> this is a listener in Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, Honolulu. Ooh. Hello, Carl Christensen. I appreciate your work on the Zorba Pastor Show. At the end of the show, um, it pained me to hear you mispronounce the instrument. It's ukulele, not ukulele. Ukulele. Ooh, so much fun. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. <laughs> sorry Zorba I had to put this one on just because I, you know I haven't, hosted, I haven't co-hosted the show that many times but it's fun that was basically this marks my first grammar police infraction that's for right. me I feel great about that's it. it that's it that's it you know what once they start to attack you, you've made it. That's what everyone <laughs> says. Where was the ukulele? Where did it come from? I mean, I don't know Google in front of me. Is it from Hawaii? Hawaii. Pretty sure it's from Hawaii. That's yeah. Hawaii, so. yep. But if it's not, someone will let us know. They'll let yeah, me do know, you, hopefully. Do you play the ukulele? I, I have a ukulele. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, have, so, I, I, I play it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, Carl, uh, here's the challenge, the Carl challenge. You <laughs> are going to play the ukulele on one of our future shows. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> That's really you opening myself it. up to criticism, but that sounds fun. It. <laughs> and you got to play the ukulele. You got to do it live. I don't want any recorded ukulele. Oh, it's going to sound have great. A live <laughs> ukulele, and you can do whatever song it can be. You know, do you want to be a badger on the ukulele? Oh, a Wisconsin song, or you know, Wisconsin <laughs> said it all. I can see you're thinking, go hmm. pack go kind of ukulele. I'll leave it to you. You're okay. a creative mind. Okay, but it's and we're gonna and then and then you're gonna be. Ukulele Carl, that's going to be your name. We'll have a little card made and the whole thing. It really and, rolls and, off the tongue, doesn't it? Ukulele Carl. Ukulele Carl. You got <laughs> to have, you know, you've got to have the fake lay on you because, you know, we, don't, we can't do it, the fake lay on the whole thing. Okay, we'll see. Stay tuned. We'll see, we'll see if we do that. Uh, 800-462-7413. That's 800-462-7413. And finally, Zorba, on a previous show, you were talking about how hearing music in the surgery room can help patients with... With pain. You remember that? Yes, 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 yes. Yep. And then on our Facebook page, we've been making a, a whole playlist of songs that you could play during surgery. It's been pretty funny. We did a segment on it before. And there's a couple more additions to that playlist. You want to hear some of those? I do. I okay. Do. Patrick in Yukon, Oklahoma, added one that I'm actually surprised that most people missed. Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one, right? It's so obvious. It's right in front of her. That's right. That's what you do when you're having heart. Staying Alive, just play. It would be a little monotonous over time, but it would right. be good. But the heartbeat would always be at 100 BPM, right? Isn't that you the chest it. compression yeah, song? Yeah, that's right. Staying Alive, Staying Alive. Go. That's right. And then uh, Wayne from Milwaukee wrote... I want to be sedated by the Ramones. Do you know that song? <laughs> I do not know that song, but and I then, love the name. I want to be <laughs> and then Wayne also wrote for major surgeries. How about "Don't Fear the Reaper" by Blue Oyster Cult? <laughs> Good cowbell song. Um, also, a listener named Barb 
sent us this email. I'm a retired nurse anesthetist. Years ago, I was providing anesthesia to a 103-year-old woman. Wow. The radio played Knockin' on Heaven's Door, <laughs> Bob Dylan, shortly after the surgery started, and then near the end of the surgery, <laughs> Stairway to Heaven played. <laughs> Barb goes on, she woke up just fine and did very well post-op. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, what not to have on your playlist. Let's talk about that. Knockin' on Heaven's Door and Stairway Stairway to heaven. You know, those you do not want to have that on your, on your <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks for all those suggestions. 800. Thank you. Thank you. 800-462-7413 is the number to call. But we have to take a break now. We'll have more of your calls to come. We have another topic to discuss. And Zorba will be answering more of your emails. All of that coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the public radio exchange. Carl Christensen filling in for Tom Clark on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. 800-462-7413 is the number to call where anytime you can leave a voicemail for Dr. Zorba. And then stay tuned. You might just pop up on an episode of the show. But before we hear from more of our listeners, Zorba, there's some new research about how sleep is vital to forming our memories. Well, the more we learn about sleep, the more we learn about how important sleep is. Uh, and I, I found an interesting thing. So it's just out in Seattle where two of my daughters are and looking at their, th- I have three grandchildren out there. The oldest is three. And I looked at basically one grandchild, Marcel, a little over a year old, the other grandchild, uh, Lorenzo, also in between one and two years old. And I look at them and I look at how much they're moving around. They are continuous movement, continuous exploration. And all of a sudden, bang, their brain shuts off and they have to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like suddenly, you know, both their all of their parents know, hey, they've reached their limit. I know what it's going to be like. I have to put them to sleep now. And then they're dead to the world right. for two to three hours and they come back. And mm-hmm. then you look at kids and you look at how much they're learning and you look at how much they're sleeping and you realize sleep is an important part of their learning. It's when memories then have a chance to construct. And we know that when people don't get enough sleep, if they're kept, for instance, up awake for two or three days, that they become sort of psychotic and they're not able to function and do things. Well, this new information shows even more importantly, and this is information with mice, information with some psychological studies, that we actually preserve our memories during sleep. And so getting good sleep is important. Carol, how many hours of sleep do you get? I was afraid you were going to ask me that, Zorba. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's been pretty spotty since having kids. I would say... I, if I get six hours, I'm pretty happy about that. Uh-huh. When you have kids at home, it's going to be hard for you to get you know more than those six hours of sleep, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Very difficult. So I think what's important here from these studies is to say sleep is important. And trying to get a good night's sleep really is important. And if you have the opportunity to good night's sleep by reading in bed, by taking some time before you go to sleep, to get a good night's sleep, it's an important thing to do. One thing is people often go to sleep with the television on, and that can lead to fragmented sleep. Sleeping with the radio on, reading something before you go to sleep is something that's different. But the blue light from a TV or a screen is not the best thing before you go to sleep. And if you can't get a good night's sleep, looking at the meds that you're on, talking to the pharmacist or your doctor can also make a difference. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413. It's the number to call anytime if you'd like to leave us a question. Let's get back to more of those voicemails. Here's a caller from Wisconsin. My question is, where is um, stem cell research in... um the process of getting approved by the FDA and um, used as a substitute for like acupuncture and um, physical therapy and instead of Botox treatment for people with um, like spasmodic torticollis, um, where is the stem cell research? Um, how close is it to being approved so we can get it covered by insurance and um, 
regular people like myself can utilize that in our treatments like scoliosis and spondylosis and spine injury, nerve injury, muscle atrophy, etc. Thank you for your time. Oh, she brings up a lot of diseases. Uh, first of all, stem cell research is in its infancy. It's not approved because it's in its infancy. We don't really know whether or not it's actually going to produce anything. We have a theory that if we use stem cells, we can actually get our body to produce good cells that are diseased within our body, uh, but nothing has come of it yet. And whether or not it's pie in the sky, whether or not it'll be real, I don't know. That's the answer. I don't know, and nobody really knows. Now, spasmodic torticollis uh, is quite interesting. That's where you have these muscle spasms that pull your neck to one side or another. And picture somebody with a spasmodic neck pulling to one side. And Botox was the drug, which is was actually the drug, it's botulism toxin, that was actually invented for spasmodic torticollis, which is a terrible disease. And then and then it they developed more uses for it. And the you know the most common use right now is still a cosmetic use to get rid of basically wrinkles. But it's now used for a whole bunch of other things for chronic pain. It's used, believe it or not, for migraine headaches. It's used for people who have chronic pain in their back and other stuff. The Botox injections, they don't last forever, can actually make a difference in chronic pain. And Botox right now is in the process of going off patent. It's very, very expensive. And once it goes off patent, it's going to be, it's going to reach wider use because it's going to be cheaper and easier to do. But she mentions a whole bunch of things that are involved with that. And the reality is getting back to stem cells, high in the sky, infancy in the research, that's how science works. First, we imagine things, then we start experimenting, and then a lot of the stuff we do are duds, and then some things, bang, we hit it right on the spot, and Botox was one of the things that really, really was and still is an extremely useful thing that was found serendipity. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413. Okay, Zorba, as you know, we have a, a very robust Facebook page for Zorba Pastor on Your Health, and we always appreciate our listeners checking it and especially posting on it. So it's time again for Facebook Feedback. Facebook Feedback. All right, Zorba, this question comes from a listener, Ron, in Wisconsin. Ron writes, Hello, Zorba. My wife and I are loyal listeners and contributors to WPR. I have what? Thanks for that, Ron. I have one request. Thank you. I am a brother, parent, and grandparent of type 1 diabetics. Many have a built-in negative view of people with diabetes due to the fact that lifestyle choices may play a role in type 2 diabetes. So would it be possible to always say, quote, type 2 diabetes when speaking about diabetes that might be triggered by lifestyle choices? Our son and granddaughter contracted type 1 at ages 15 and 9 and are very fit and lean. Thanks for the information and entertainment your show brings us. Well, uh, type 2 diabetes, we know, is often associated with with obesity, but it's actually not always associated with obesity. It's just commonly associated with obesity. So, you know, when we talk about diabetes on the show, I often default and just say diabetes. And you know what? I think they bring up an important point. You know, type 1 diabetes is where you need insulin all the time, and it's not a lifestyle issue. It's all of a sudden your pancreas stops working through no fault of your own. So I think I'll try to be a little bit more specific. I don't know if I'll do it every single time I talk about it, because on the whole, you know, eating an appropriate diet, making sure you exercise, doing all the right stuff is important for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But I want to thank them for their comment, and yes, I'm sure they would love not to take their insulin and they would love to fact they would love to be able to as a type 1 diabetic be able to make a lifestyle change and their pancreas would start to produce something it isn't getting back to the last call that's really where stem cells stem cell research is really primary trying to get stem cells that actually will produce insulin would be a boon to diabetics because you would be able to get an, one injection of stem cells and then all of a sudden your pancreas would start producing insulin that would be amazing and that's where a lot of that stem cell research, by the way, is focused on. And Zorba, do you remember those commercials with Wilford Brimley? For He was talking about diabetes. Remember those that would come on? But he would always say he pronounced it diabetes. Uh, 
I do remember those Maybe. And and by the way, a lot of people do pronounce it diabetes. My diabetes. My daughter, I say, why are you saying diabetes? I said, I don't know. It's easier. She said, diabetes is easier than diabetes. <laughs> it's the same length, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, that's right. So, how do you pronounce it? I, I say diabetes, but maybe mm-hmm. I'm just sensitive because I know I just I don't know what it is about Wilford Brimley. I think I've brought him up here a lot. For some reason, I Zorba, I really want you to know who he is. He was in Cocoon. Uh, he you know he passed away last year, but I I just think you should look into Wilford Brimley. He was the oatmeal guy too. He was the pitch man for Quaker Oats. He was pretty old when he died. I'm not sure actually. I got to yeah. look that one up. Yeah, I'm not sure. Up. But you, I think if I play this clip, you'll remember who Wilford Brimley was because of the he was he had so many commercials for Quaker Oats. So. If you'll indulge me a little bit here, do you okay. want to hear a okay. Wilford Brimley you clip? I, I'm, all, I'm all ears, Carl. All okay. ears. And the first line of this clip is very interesting, so pay attention to this first line. Here's, uh, here's Wilford Brimley for Quaker Oats. You know Quaker Oats makes you feel good twice? First when you eat it. Pure oats and it's piping hot. Then you feel good again because it stays with you and it helps keep you rolling all morning. Quaker Oats, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do, Zorba. <laughs> but I, but I got to gotta tell you something. When he said it was two things, first yeah. you eat it, then my thought was then, then you what? poop it. Then <laughs> exactly. You poop it. I, I feel like the writer it. of that ad knew that, and that was their hook kind of. They were like, oh, yeah, this will get the listener. He's going to say poop it, and he didn't say that at all. Can't That's wait to hear right. Wilford Brimley say poop. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks for the Facebook comments. Don't forget, you can always send us an- <laughs> You know, whenever we talk talk about poop it always goes back to our 10 year old mind (laughs) (laughs) you can always send us an old-fashioned email at (laughs) where zorba zorba (laughs) at wpr.org all right 800-462-7413 that's 1-800-462-7413 back to our voicemails here is a caller from claxton tennessee I attended my Medicare physical this past Monday, and I had a COVID-19 or have a COVID-19 vaccine scheduled. And I asked my doctor, "Is this shot she wanted to give me a pneumonia vaccine going to interfere with my COVID?" And she said, "No." Okay, so I get home. The doctor's office calls me. They have an opening for a COVID vaccine, so I go over there. Well, guess what? They wouldn't give it to me, and when you go to the net, you can read why they won't give it to you. But anyhow, it was all my doings, but my question is, my doctor should have known better. Should I call back down to the office and tell my doctor that she told me incorrectly? I appreciate all your help. Enjoy your show. Thanks. The answer is yes. You should call back down to the office. And once again, this is new science in there on how often you can, uh, rather how closely you can give the COVID vaccine with other vaccines. And frankly, I have to look stuff like that up all the time. And so, yeah, I would call back. I call back her doctor and say, look, you know, you can't, and I, and I don't know the number of days. I don't have Google in front of me, so I can't look, and I can't look at the CDC guidelines. But there is a time between vaccines that you actually have to wait. Why do you have to wait? Because uh, the CDC says that. And it, obviously, it has to do with side effects and whether or not you're going to get, uh, a, a, you know, a more side effects or a less robust response. But yeah, I would call back and say, hey, you said I could get the vaccine and it wouldn't interfere with my COVID because that doctor may not know that. And you know what? It's always good to give feedback. Feedback is always good. I mean, none of us has all the information all the time. We all doctors, we doctors all make mistakes because we have incorrect information or information is older or we're not thinking or we didn't pay attention or just chance. And so feedback, I look at feedback when something goes wrong and I've done something wrong. Feedback, I look at it as manna from heaven. It's a way for me to improve my practice. And that's the only way medicine should be. It should be continuous quality improvement because we're always learning. And that's why we call it the practice of medicine. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413. But Zorba, before we hit the road today, let's open up the Zorba Pastor on Your Health inbox and share a listener question. This email came to us from a listener named Abby. Abby writes, 
Hi, Dr. Zorba. I'm a fan of your show and always find your advice helpful and interesting. I'm not sure how radio-friendly this may be, but I'm a 30-year-old female and I've been running for several years and have encountered an embarrassing predicament. Occasionally when I run, I suddenly and urgently need to defecate. Only some of the other runners I know have experienced this, and I have a suspicion it may happen to me more seriously. Any idea what would cause this? It does seem to occur more predictably if I'm running faster or going uphill. Thanks for your thoughts you have, and again, I love the show. This is not unusual. This actually is common. And there, there are a couple of ways you may be able to attend to this. And first of all, you empty your bowels before you run. In other words, you go and you defecate and you get in the habit of defecating. You can't defecate. You have some hot water, uh, a big glass of hot water, a big cup of coffee, something to sort of get your bowels moving. And what happens is often when we actually run and we do things, the body says, hey, I've got to get rid of stuff. You really want to run fast. I've got to get rid of stuff. I've got to get you know, get rid of stuff that may interfere, which is something in my GI tract. The GI tract works opposite when, when we're running. In other words, when we're running, all of our blood is going to our muscles. Very little is going to our gut. And sometimes the GI tract says, hey, I got to get rid of all this stuff in the gut because you have to get food, energy to the muscles. And so this is not unusual sort of runner's defecation. I've heard this myself from patients and I tell them you got to do it beforehand. And if not, you got to figure out how to deal with it when you're running. I don't know an answer to this, but I think there are runners who listen to our program that can actually chime in on suggestions on their Facebook page. I mean, the biggest suggestion I have is whether or not you have to do it or not, you try to empty your bowels before you go and run, try to have a bowel movement, but let's put it up on our Facebook page. See, yeah. see what kind of response. Great idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are a lot of runners out there who have dealt with this. That I know for sure that is not unusual and it doesn't mean there's anything more serious going on with your body. Good advice, and yeah, we'll stay tuned to look at the Facebook page, and maybe some people will chime in with that. But we're out of time, Zorba. Stay well, Zorba. And you know, I'll try. <laughs> if you missed anything during the show, or you just want to download our show podcast, visit us on the web. At ZorbaPastry.org, or of course, through Facebook. And don't forget, you can call us anytime to leave us your question at 800-462-7413. And please do visit the Zorba Pastor on Your Health Facebook page for Zorba's frequent coronavirus updates. Zorba Pastor on Your Health is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio. It is not intended as a medical diagnosis, so please do check with your doc. Our executive producer is me, Carl Christensen. Our technical director is Brad Kohlberg. Our theme music is by Leo and Ben Sidron. For Zorba Pastor and Tom Clark, I'm Carl Christensen, asking you to join us on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Did you miss something on today's show? Simply go to ZorbaPastor.org to catch up on all things Zorba. There you will find recipes from the show, links to the Facebook page, Zorba's healthy living articles, and you can subscribe to the weekly podcast. On the web, that's ZorbaPastor.org.